off always as a reminder, I like to just do a little back back review just very quickly uh, just to let you know why we're doing what we're doing and first of all it's this scripture right here Matthew 28 19 through 20 now a lot of people will say that's the great commission and a commission means that you're being you're being uh, basically ordained or given orders to go do something a commission you're commissioned to do something and it's kind of an official thing so we call this the great commission that Jesus commissioned his disciples and that would be us as well to go and make disciples of all the nations. As, you, as we've talked about before, the grammar of this actually says go and disciple the nations. It doesn't just go make disciples of the it, It's go and disciple nations. We're called to disciple nations. The beauty of it is living where we live, uh, not just Fredericksburg and America in general, is that the nations have come to us in a lot of ways. I uh, had a great conversation with Austin this morning. Many of y'all know Austin has announced and shared they are preparing right now to go to Lisbon, Ireland. Uh, probably the target is right at the end of uh, July is sort of the target we're all looking at. And the idea there's to go and to another country, another place to do this very thing, to go and disciple a nation, to go and take what he's learned and, and also he'll receive deposits from them. And so this, this idea that we're, we're a global people, we're local and we're global, which is global if you put them together. So we're, we're both and. And so we're excited about what God's doing right in front of us. We're excited about what he's doing across the world. So this is why we're doing a class or a series, this is called an equip series, is because the goal is to be equipped so that just like Jerry's showing up, not even sure why he's there, and then boom, there it is. Okay, this is that. This is why I'm here. And he begins to realize, okay, I'm equipped. I'm ready for this. So we're getting ready. Also, another piece of this is this. It's the Harvest Vision. Max Ocato shared with us last year in August uh, the Harvest Vision. Uh, something that he and I and some others had been talking about actually for a, almost a year prior to that where, where God had just dropped this in him. When he brought it up to us sitting around a table, I just came out of my seat. I was like, yes, that. We believe. We believe God is stirring, creating, and that God's desires for a great harvest of souls, a great harvest of people coming to faith in Christ, coming into the kingdom. And, of course, my whole cry is, why not here, why not now, why not us, right? Uh, I, I love reading about what, God's, what God just did in Orlando last week with the send. I don't know if you heard about that. An amazing event. I love that. I get excited. It's motivating and encouraging. But that's Orlando, Florida. I'm like, what about here? What does God want to do here in our midst? So the Harvest Vision is about that. So our baseline, which is very similar to the Great Commission or the Apostolic Mandate is another way to say it. But here's the thing. Here's the empowerment piece. We can't go disciple the nations unless we have power. In a very real sense, you don't send a sheriff out to do his job without packing heat, right? He's got to have some firepower. You don't send a SWAT team in to, to disarm or de-escalate a situation without the proper tools. Well, you don't send a carpenter to do his trade without the right tools. And, and you can follow that metaphor as far as you want. But at the end of the day, you don't send followers of Jesus out in the world to share the good news of Jesus Christ in a hostile world, in a hostile environment, without power. Without the right equipment. That's what Acts 1-8 is all about. We've talked in depth about it, so I'll just, just a cursory reading of it. But you will receive 
power, word dunamis, we get our word dynamite from that. It literally means explosive power or force. And it also means this, if you look at uh, Strong's Gordon's, it's power for working miracles. Very specific. So dunamis is power for working miracles. You will receive power for working miracles. Now, we've already tracked that. We started in Acts chapter 1, and we've seen throughout now 23 chapters of how over and over and over these signs shall follow those that believe. In my name they will. And this is what has happened over and over. These signs bear witness of the testimony. And I say, the same God who worked miracles then works miracles today. The God who spoke still speaks. The Holy Spirit who acted still acts. Amen? Amen. So, but you say, well, why don't we see that? Uh, maybe we're not looking for that. Maybe, maybe like the old FM stereo. No, even worse, the old AM stereos. Remember those? where you had to actually dial, they were horrible, right? And they would go off frequency, especially in the evening. You know, it's like everything changed, right, on the AM frequency. And, uh, you know, you could, like, get something down in Mexico on an AM frequency at night, given the, given the right conditions. But it seemed like you were never quite on frequency. And then the digital age came, and it's like everything's locked in. But it's the same way in our walk with him is, is this idea of being in alignment with him and actually being lined up on frequency and hearing if we don't have eyes to see. And that's why I pray this prayer often. If we don't have eyes to see, we won't see. If we don't have ears to hear, we won't hear. And if we don't have a heart to know, we won't know. And so I pray that prayer often uh, because I want to recognize and connect the dots between the kinds of things that we pray, the words that we say, and we talked about that on Sunday, and what's going on in the world so that we're connecting to the dots and we say, oh wait, this is that. We prayed for this. For example, let me do, this is a real world experience. So on Sunday morning, you might have seen that Marcy came up to the front and she, she made her home right here at the altar. Don prayed with her and tried to assist her. And when he said, are you ready to go sit down? She was like, basically, I'm not leaving this altar. She was having a Jacob moment where she was wrestling at the River Jebok, if you know the story, where, it, where he said, I'm, I'm not going to let go until you bless. She wanted a breakthrough. And she had the courage and thank the Lord, the tenacity to tell Don... <laughs> I'm not leaving. And Don said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> so, so, so Don, several people, and, and I sort of knew what was going on, not, not the whole story, but I felt like the Lord was showing me, because it, it could have been a distraction, or could it be God's doing something very deep? And what I figured out and, and processed over the last few days and talking with Kim, her daughter, and what was happening, is that everybody that came in with a, about a five-foot radius knew God was up to something. There was something happening there. And then the Lord reminded me. He said, Jimmy, you pray for freedom. You pray that this would be a safe place. He said, if you're going to pray these things, don't be surprised how I come, how I show up. And I just said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. So I, I said, maybe we need to get some pads or something to put down here when somebody's going to be down there for an hour and slide them out from under the curtain or whatever here. We expected you to be here. So who knows, right, what God's up to. But the idea is being in alignment and then recognizing God when he's at work and being excited about it. Not saying how, but saying, wow, it's amazing. So it was a beautiful, beautiful thing that happened. I think we're, a lot of us that have, were in the orbit of that are still, I think, the Lord's speaking things to us through that. So this power, 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and here it is, you'll be my witnesses. What does a witness do? They answer the questions that are being asked. That means we have to live a life that's compelling enough that people are asking questions. It's not that complicated. It's just we're living our faith out in a way that people say, how do you live up in a down world? I want to know what makes you tick. I want to know what batteries you're running on. I want to know what, you're, what you have in your coffee. How do you do that? And you get the opportunity to share, well, this is how, this is why. This is why I get excited when I get up. I say, good morning, Holy Spirit. What are we going to do today? What adventure are we going to start out on today? And so I had a great conversation today earlier about the adventure in God, adventures in God. I mean, what we do when we live a life of expectation, and we're going to talk about hope this Sunday. Hope means confident, joyful expectation of a desired good. So we're going to talk about that, how when you live a life of hope, life becomes an adventure. And your walk with Jesus doesn't become bore, boring, stale religion that's just for Sunday morning or, and occasional church attendance. It's literally your life. And that's when this thing gets really fun and life takes on meaning. So this whole idea of being a witness in Jerusalem, all Judea, and then he said Samaria kind of stopped the room right there because Samaria was those dirty Gentiles. That was the people they didn't associate with. And he said, oh, they're in this thing too. Now, it took them a while because we didn't really see the Gentiles get reached until eight to ten years later at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter so anyway, that's that. And so our harvest vision is this idea of a harvest. So I grew up in West Texas. A harvest is near and dear to me. Uh, you do not wait to prepare your combines when the cotton's in the field. Farmers may appear to not be doing a lot on the service because you don't see them out in the field. But trust me, behind the scenes, they're getting everything ready. They're making sure their machinery is running properly. The oil's changed. Everything is greased and ready to go because when it's time to go and harvest, it's go time. And so the idea, there's a lot of preparation up to go time, harvest. So harvest, when, when we got that word and felt like that was for us, my mentality is that we need to be equipped. We need to be ready. We need to have an army of people trained and ready that when it shows up, we start saying, we're ready for this. Not, oh no, oh no, what do we do now? No, we know what to do now. In fact, we're already leaning into it and we're already beginning to see, I think, the first fruits of that. So we, our little vision piece out of that, and really it's a strategy, is 4D, and you can see it there. We want you to discover who you are in Christ, discover your identity. Gail's teaching that tonight. Kicking it off, we had Bill Loveless here of Christ's Life Ministries on Saturday morning. Had a room full of people in there, and Bill taught for two hours on identity, and it was electric. The place was like, I mean, that was the best I've ever heard Bill. He was on fire. And he loves his church because this is kind of his home away from home. But Bill did a phenomenal job teaching on identity, who we are in Christ, not who the mirror tells us we are, not who our mindset, and not, who, not the echo in the tapes from the past telling us who we are or what some, uh, some meaningful adult or significant adult spoke death over us. Remember death and life are in the power of the tongue? And so a lot of us have had death spoken over us and Jesus wants to reroute that and begin to speak life over your life. So that's that whole idea of discover. The, whole, the second piece is develop. It's part of what we do here. It's that equipping piece. 
uh, I'm meeting with a couple of people, and we're going through the Purple Book together. I shared about the Purple Book. We'll be talking more about that and introducing it to you. But it's a, it's a discipleship tool that you walk, walk with somebody through going back to basics. Every time I've done it, I get new things out of it. It's very fresh because it's based on the Scripture. The, the third thing there is deploy. We want to get out there among people. And that's kind of what God's doing with Jerry right now. He's deployed him to a group of people, and, and they're asking a lot of questions. So he wants to deploy us and get us out in the places where we, there's three environments, where we live, where we work, and where we play. So out there where we do life, we're deployed, we're equipped, we know who we are in Christ, so we're confident and we're secure. We don't live an insecure, uh, timid life. We actually are bold and courageous in Christ. And then the last piece of that, this is sort of a result disruption occurs. That's not a negative term, by the way, because it's easy to see that and go, oh, that's negative. Oh, that's rebellious. No, not at all. It's revolutionary, but it also is positive in the sense that the basic definition of, of disrupt means to interrupt the normal course of things. That's it. It's like a line break. There, there's something that disrupts. I came to Christ because I got disrupted when I was 19 years of age. Many of us have had disruptive moments. My brother his life was disrupted by my mother being in the hospital with a heart attack who subsequently died a month later. But the disruption of that opened his heart to the gospel. And I was able to lead my brother to Christ at Lubbock United Methodist Hospital in a little chapel, a little prayer chapel there while we were down there praying on our knees for our mom to live and not die at 45 years of age. She did pass away, but my brother was born again. So even in her death, life came out of that. You know what I mean? God redeemed that moment. And so my brother's walked with Jesus ever since. So the disrupt piece, that's what we do. There's disruption that creates opportunities for the gospel. I hope that makes sense to you. So moving right along, just a few things, because we've not shared this here, but I want to share you some th with some things that, that are in the oven, so to speak, as we are looking at becoming our our own uh, church. We're sort of, we've grown up and it's time to go to college. By the way, just found this out today. We had a little conversation about the other night. Somebody, I, I started asking, when did this church actually start? Because I wasn't here in the beginning. And it turns out that it was in March of 2009. Hello. We're in our 10th year right now, anniversary this month. So I talked to Barbara Turner. She was trying to nail it down. She couldn't find her notes. Uh, Rick Nikosha was here in the beginning as well. He had some notes when they started at the Rock Box six months later, so we tracked it back, and it was March 2009 when they had the first meeting in a living room at Barbara Turner's house of just a handful of people. As of last Sunday, we had over 500 people here. So isn't that beautiful how God can bring so much out of the smallest, tiniest seed, and now we get to enjoy the harvest of all that. So in a very real sense, we're standing on the shoulders of giants, amen, as we continue to get to enjoy what God's up to. So here's some pieces here. Vision uh, is this, is that we wanna, we're becoming passionate followers of Jesus. Now, all those words are important. Becoming means we're not, we've not arrived, we're in process. We're in, the, we're in this process. We're on the journey. So we're becoming passionate. In other words, I don't want to just be a follower. God didn't call us to live a boring life. He called us to adventure. He called us to a great adventure. And that means understanding that this energy, this gospel brings the energy into our lives. The Holy Spirit brings an energy and motivates us to do life. So passionate is a whole other level of living. Artists that are passionate impact the world. Leaders that are passionate impact the world. You may not remember what they said, but you'll remember who they were. Passion is powerful. 
And so one of our goals is to see that we become passionate followers of Jesus. We want to make sure Jesus was smack dab in the middle of our statement uh, as we go forward. Part of our mission is that we're going to be building bridges where we live, work, and play. We're casting cables over to where people are, and after you cast enough cables across, it'll bear enough weight to have a conversation about Christ. So there's a whole strategy behind that. We'll unpack it for you at another time. I'm just giving you guys a little little, um, little preview. Uh, and then our strategy, we just shared that. Our strategy to discover, develop, deploy, and disrupt. That's our strategy. It's what we do. This is what we do. So anyway, there's some vision, mission, and strategy. If I, people ask me all the time, what's your vision? I'm like, well, what is our vision? Actually, more important, what's God's vision for this thing? So my vision doesn't pales in comparison to his, right? Mine's probably too small. I don't know about yours. Mine's probably a lot smaller than God's. Amen? So moving right along. Tonight, disruption in Jerusalem. Paul addresses the Sanhedrin. And I'm telling you, this thing is getting messy. Paul has gone back to Jerusalem. Remember, he's been on. In fact, I'll, before we do, say anything, I'll just show you the map. Remember their map. Paul started down here with the first missionary journey. We've come through, we're 23 chapters into the book of Acts. Everybody's been amazing coming through this. But you remember these first trips where he went all the way up here and hung out here. But three trips, three different segments, all of Asia, which is right here, has heard the gospel Three years in Ephesus, that was a very significant. Over here at the Macedonian call right here, there's Philippi. The book of Philippians is written to those believers in Philippi. There's Thessalonica, the book of Thessalonians. Their letter to the Thessalonians was there. Berea. Bereans were referred to as those who searched the scriptures. They were like, uh, you can tell me, but I'm going to go check you. I love that, actually. I think it's great. We all need to be checked up. So it's good. So then you've got Athens, Corinth. Remember 1st, 2nd Corinthians? Remember Corinth? It was a big train wreck, right? Anybody remember that? Yeah. People who say, I want to go back to the early days of the Bible, I'm going, read 1st and 2nd Corinthians. You might not want to go back there. It was a train wreck. And there's, the reason that book, those books and letters are so long because there was so much to fix. There were, Paul had to put a lot of work into that. And he did when he was in Ephesus. He was back and forth to Corinthia a lot. So all these, and then Laodicea, that's referred to in the book of Revelation. Um, anyway, all these different places. Now, Paul says, I must go to Rome. Paul had a strategy. He understood that if you can lead the leaders and influence the influencers, the gospel would go throughout the world. So while it was great that he was in Jerusalem, he impacted Israel, impacted the Jews. He wanted to impact the world. And he had a vision for that because he was operating on God's vision, not his. And so he said, I've got to go to Rome. But he said, I have to go to Jerusalem first because they had taken up an offering. So he had finances to take back resources back to the Christians in Jerusalem who were under persecution and in a very difficult space. So there it is. They hop a boat. They go all the way back. There's Caesarea. And then here it is, Jerusalem. They're back. He gets to Jerusalem against the better judgment of all of the brothers. Because they were saying, you really shouldn't go. In fact, by the Spirit, we think you shouldn't go because you will be killed if you do. Because they were looking for him. Because he was a disruptor. He was disruptive in nature. But he was insistent on going. He shows up. Sure enough, disruption starts to happen. All, all heaven breaks loose, right? Chaos, everything. He's being threatened within it. I mean, the Jews are just out of their minds ready to kill him. So here he is. Because he was, I don't know if you remember this, but he was the rookie of the year Pharisee. 
He was the up and coming. He was the superstar. He was that one coming up, man, that first pick in the draft. Everybody wanted Paul because he was, he was a zealot, zeal for God, on fire. But it was all through Judaism. It was all through the Old Covenant. And it was as a Pharisee trained up under Gamaliel, who was one of the, one of the top uh, instructors, top, top rabbis of the whole world, of that whole known world there. So Paul was like superstar. And so he shows back up. They all know who he is, but they also know that God flipped the script on Paul, knocked him off his high horse, so to speak, on the road to Damascus, and called him into service for Jesus Christ. So now all of a sudden, the people he was persecuting, he's now encouraging, building up, and winning people to Jesus. So he's preaching through all these. That brings us to where we are right now, back in Jerusalem, to hand off the offering. And then, somehow, now look at the distance. Somehow get from here to here, to Rome. I mean, that is, that is no small stretch without an airplane. So he's got to get from here to here. How in the world, without finances, resources, backing, is he going to get here? Well, we're going to see how, the, how God has a way. God makes a way where there is no way. We have to stop saying how every time somebody brings up something and just start saying, wow, if God's in it, it'll get resourced. And I found this through 35 years of doing this. Money follows mission. Where there's a mission from God, money will follow it. If it's from God, money will follow. Money follows mission. So he'll, God will resource what, he's, what he has set up. What he's called you to, he'll resource you for. So, God, so that's how I always know if God's in something, he will, he will take care of it. Because it's his kingdom. It's his strategy. It's his mission. And that's where trust comes in. So let's say, for example, let's say in a year, I'm just throwing this out, seeding it a little bit. Let's say we decide, hey, Austin and Kate have been in Lisbon, Ireland, Northern Ireland, for a year now. They're settled in and they're ready for us to come do a mission trip. So we get together and we just put this call out and say, hey, how many of you want to go to Northern Ireland, to Lisbon, just outside of Belfast, for, for a 10-day or a 7-day mission trip. Yeah, me too. I'm in. So you can, you can go into a panic mode and say, but I can't come up with, 20, let's say, $2,500. I don't know what it costs. I'm just throwing stuff out. But say it's $2,500. Some people say, there is no way. I have had $2,500 in my bank account in a very long time. But here's the thing. If God calls you to it, he'll resource you for it. Money follows mission. So if you're called to it, trust me, he has a way of taking care of those things. That doesn't mean you just sit around and wait for money to fall off the tree, but there's things to do and to rally and support and, and get help. And I'm telling you, those who are supposed to go will go. Amen? Does that make sense? So throwing that out there is maybe a possibility next year. You know, I think that would be a great trip, don't you all? Mission trip. There's a lot to do there. I've been there, and it's, it's amazing. Yeah, so I'm, already, I'm just throwing that out as kind of a faith thing. I believe we're going to end up going. So here's Paul. He's got to get to Rome, but now he's in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, all heaven breaks loose. So let's pick it up in our scriptures. I'm going to back up. We're going to Acts chapter 22 if you're following in your own Bible. I just threw that down there because I want to just remind you that where there are no oxen, the stable is clean, but abundant harvest comes by the strength of the ox. Kingdom ministry is messy. It's just messy, y'all. It's not neat and tidy. What we're trying to do, it's not neat and tidy. 
when it's all neat and tidy, I get nervous that maybe we're not pushing the boundaries enough. Maybe we're not actually walking by faith. Maybe we're not taking any risk. But God's called us to a life of risk. And so I just I want to remind you that the ministry, the kingdom is where there are no oxen, the stable's clean. I don't, do I have to define what that means? <laughs> we're scooping, right? So if there's no oxen and it's clean, that means nothing's happening. But where there's abundant harvest comes by the strength of the ox. So the stable that's dirty and nasty and stinky is actually the one that's producing a harvest. Does that make sense? So anyway, lean into that because I'm telling you, God's, God's got great things ahead for us. It's going to be fun. Fun ride. All right, here we go. Paul before, uh, that's my misspell, Paul before the high council. Acts 22.30 in the New Living Translation is what I'm using uh, during this piece because I like the NLT for a narrative flow. When you're reading more of a narrative passage of Scripture, it's a really nice flow and it's, it's got good scholarship behind it. So if you're ever interested in different translations, I highly recommend the NLT when you're reading long passages of Scripture. Verse 30. So the next day, the commander ordered the leading priests into session with the Jewish high council. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about, so he released Paul to have him stand before them. I don't know if you remember this, but Paul had been taken into custody because the Jews were ready to kill him. And the Roman guard were nervous. Not because they were worried about a Jew getting killed. They were not worried about Paul getting murdered, killed, stoned in the street, they, they could care less. They, they'd just soon run a sword through him anyway. But that what they were worried about was the ruckus that it was causing, and they didn't want to bring the hammer of Rome down. So it's kind of like you're in authority, but there's a much higher authority, and if you mess up, the higher authority is going to hammer you. And so they were like trying to keep these wild Jewish people who kept having riots and they're always getting worked up, they were always trying to keep it quiet. It's almost like if Rome doesn't hear, we're okay. We'll have our own little thing down here. So anytime there was a riot or things got stirred up, they quickly tried to quell it. They quickly tried to settle it down. And that's exactly what happened. They wanted to kill Paul and they're like, and then they grabbed Paul, put him in chains, and they actually scourged him. They beat him. Because they're trying to get him to say, okay, these people are mad for a reason. What did you do? And then they ordered him to be, to be lashed. They ordered him to be beaten. Now, Paul then throws down the ace card that he had been holding for a long time. He says, I'm a Roman citizen. Well, these are Roman soldiers who knew the law and understood they cannot, without a formal trial, lay a hand on another Roman. They thought he was just a Jewish guy. But then they find out, wait, he's a Roman. Yes. He announced his lineage last week on the, in the scripture. If you go up before that, he says, I'm, I'm Saul of Tarsus in Cilicia. And he gives his pedigree, so to speak. And they were like, instead of risking it, because if it turned out to be true, and they did do what they were planning to do with him, then they would be held accountable. And they did, again, not wanting to bring Rome down on top of them. They were like, oh. And so everybody sort of backed away from Paul. And then Paul takes it a whole other step and says, can I address these people? Remember that? He steps up on the steps. <laughs> wow. And so he, he, again, disruption, right? So here's, that's where we find ourselves right now. He said something to them and they freaked out. Now they're like tearing the stairs down. They're trying to get him. So every time Paul opens his mouth, 
disruption occurs right now. So not that Paul is intentionally, he's just, he's bringing the kingdom. And the kingdom by its very nature is disruptive to this kingdom. Because this is a fallen world, right? We live in a fallen world. So the nature of a righteous kingdom coming into a broken thing, it's going to be disruptive in nature. So every time he brought the kingdom, there was disruption. The next day, the commander ordered the leading priest into sessions because the commander says, okay, I'm hands off because if I touch this guy and he's a Roman, then, then we're in trouble. So look what he does. The commander ordered the leading priests into session. That's the high council. That's the 70 plus elders of Jerusalem. They've been here before. We've read about this before, these guys. It was made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and leaders from the community. He orders them into session with the Jewish high council. That's that, that group. He wanted to find out what the trouble was all about. So he released Paul to have him stand before him. In other words, okay, we can't beat this guy. He's a Roman citizen. So what is the problem? So he says, let's all get in the same room together and figure this out. Because the Roman, again, the Roman guy doesn't want trouble. So he's like, let's try to talk this out. And then that sets the scene for what we're going to read right now. Remember, the Bible, this is real people. These are real events happening in a real place at a real time. So don't go into fairyland when you're reading the Bible. Begin to realize this is a historical account, not just a story. It is a story, but it's not like from a fairy tale book. Does that make sense? I know I hammer that a lot because it's really important that we read the Bible in its historical context and read it as a real, these are real people, real emotions, just like us. And try to do the best we can to enter into the story so that we understand the dynamics of what's going on. Because again, these aren't superheroes. They aren't super spiritual. They're people just like us who had an assignment from God that they're simply walking out into just as you have an assignment of God. But we learn from their life what that, the dynamics all around that. It, and it gives us courage to walk out our assignment. So he wanted to find out what the trouble was about, so he released Paul to have him stand before him. So now you've got this big group, 70 plus. You've got Pharisees, Sadducees. You've got leaders. They're all together. And uh, probably more like 100 folks when you put all that whole group into a room. A large group of people. And trust me, it was volatile. It was volatile. So look what happens. Gazing intently at the high council, Paul begins. So Paul stands. He's going to speak. He says, brothers. I mean, the first words out of Paul's mouth, he just creates a train wreck right here. Watch what happens. Brothers, I have always lived before God with a clear conscience. And look what happens. Instantly. Ananias, the high priest, by the way, he was a wicked man, not like Gamaliel, who was at one time. Ananias was worse. Instantly, Ananias, the high priest, commanded those close to Paul to slap him in the mouth. Shut him. Blaspheme. How dare you say that you have lived before God with a clear conscience? How dare you, you sinner? Slap him. Which, by the way, was a violation of the Levitical law. He starts... Ananias starts with a violation of the law. Now, interesting little development here. Watch, because Paul didn't have all the information. Paul didn't exactly know who everybody was because the high is a different high priest than when Paul was there before because look what happens. But Paul said to him, again, Paul says this in, the, in, the, in Christian love, of course, God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. And another translation says, you whitewashed tomb. 
And the same language that Jesus used when he accused the Pharisees of, of hypocrisy. God will slap you, you corrupt hypocrite. What kind of judge are you to break the law yourself? Because Paul knew the law very well. And he knew he was breaking the law by ordering somebody to be slapped. He said, what kind of judge are you to break the law yourself by ordering me struck like that? Those standing near Paul said to him, do you dare insult God's high priest? Now look at Paul's response. I'm sorry, brothers. Paul didn't realize Ananias was a high priest. He just thought another Pharisee was ordering somebody to slap him. And he didn't realize that he was actually coming against leadership. And look what happens. Very interesting dynamic. He says, I'm sorry, brothers. I didn't realize he was the high priest, Paul replied. For the scriptures say you must not speak evil of any of your rulers. Boy, you should put that on a bumper sticker. See how far that gets you. For the scriptures say you must not speak evil. So Paul repents. He says, I'm sorry, I didn't realize who that was. And he's, he's trying to give honor where honors due. Paul respects the way things are set up. I love Paul's heart in this. I mean, he did kind of rip him a new one, did he not? When he said what he did about, ooh, I mean, that was strong. But he comes back and says, uh, I'm sorry, brothers. Verse 6, Paul realized that some members of the high council were Sadducees and some were Pharisees. And this is real important for what's about to happen. And if you don't know some history here or the background here, you'll just read it and go, I'm not sure what that means, but that's weird. In fact, that's why we don't spend a lot of devotional time in this, these chapters more than likely. When was the last time you read chapter 23 of Acts? So it's not one that gives you the warm fuzzies like some other passages and some of the letters. So, but if you know what's going on, it, kinda, it helps understand it. It brings it to life. So he says this. He realizes there's two groups here. Pharisees, Sadducees, and here he is. Paul was a Pharisee and understood the difference between the two groups. And he leverages their differences. This is brilliant. This is Paul being the thinker, the strategist. So he leverages their differences, and look what he does. He says, uh, he realized some were Sadducees. So he shouted, brothers, I am a Pharisee, as were my ancestors. So he's saying, I'm telling you who I am. I'm a Pharisee, as were my ancestors. Right there is credentials. He's got street cred already just by saying that. And I am on trial because my hope is in the resurrection of the dead. And look at the result. This divided the council. Paul's mentality, divide and conquer. He's breaking things down. He's showing the hypocrisy for one. And he's showing that there's disunity here. And look what happens. This divided the council, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. Paul's completely deflecting from him and them ready to kill him to now they've turned on each other. Genius. So look what happens. This is, a, this is wild how this rolls out. Verse 8. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection or angels, or spirits. Okay, so that group, that sect, no resurrection from the dead, or angels, or spirits. That's what the Sadducees believe. But the Pharisees believe in all of these. Although they didn't believe that Jesus was resurrected, right? But they do believe in the rex, or a resurrection. And they do believe in angels or spirits. Verse 9. So there was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees jumped up and began to argue forcefully. They were, they, it was like look at, look, watching Parliament in, in England where, when they're all stirred up and they're all banging things. and It looks like chaos, but really it's cultural. So they, they jump up, they begin to argue forcefully. We see nothing wrong with him. See how quickly things turn? 
We see nothing wrong with him, they shouted. Perhaps a spirit or an angel spoke to him. They're actually saying, well, maybe, maybe something did happen after all. So now he's won the Pharisees because he identified himself as a Pharisee. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. He's one of us. I mean, this is the dynamic of this is amazing. If I was a sociologist, this would be like kid in a candy store thing. Just crazy things. Now, I want to read this to you. This is one of the, one of the things that I like to use for study. The ESV uh, study Bible notes are really well done. They're concise. So if you have an ESV study Bible with those notes, I would encourage you to, to read them. You can get it online. I've got that as a part of one of my Bible study programs, and it's one of my go-tos. So just kind of giving you a trade secret of what, where I get a lot of my information that really helps me because it's succinct and concise, and it doesn't get so down in the weeds that you're just lost all the time. It's not that scholarly. It's actually very practical. So here's their note on that passage. The Pharisees believed in angels and spirits and in a future resurrection, though they did not accept Jesus' resurrection. The Sadducees, the other side, rejected the very idea of a resurrection as well as belief in angels and spirits. Consistent with this, the Pharisees granted that a spirit or angel might have actually visited Paul, while the Sadducees rejected this possibility altogether. That's what caused the rift and the disunity and why they were all at each other in that moment. And Paul knew the dynamics and knew that if he tossed this bone out in the middle of a bunch of bulldogs, they were going to fight over it which really deflected from what was going on with him. Brilliant. Acts 23, verse 10. As the conflict grew more violent, the commander was afraid they would tear Paul apart. Because <laughs> apparently they were like all you know, up on the tables and they were going after it. So he ordered his soldiers to go and rescue him by force and take him back to the fortress. So they put him back in just to protect him. Now, verse 11. Curious thing. In the middle of all this chaos, look what happens. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul. You know, if you're just blowing through these scriptures, you can read past something like that and not even give it a thought. But God showed up to Paul. It doesn't say he had a dream or maybe a vision. He says the Lord appeared to Paul. I don't know how that strikes you, but when I read something like that in the middle of a bunch of narrative, it makes me stop for a second to go, okay, this is important. So look what happens. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, be encouraged. By the way, I've said this a dozen times, if not a hundred in here. The word encourage means to inspire courage. So when I, if, if you encourage me, like some of your stories that y'all shared tonight encouraged me, what does that do? It inspires courage in me. You inspire me to be more, do more, become more. And so the Lord says to Paul, be encouraged. He inspires courage in him. In him. He says, just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. So now God's saying, I got you here to Jerusalem, now you're going to Rome. And the Lord, remember, not just money follows mission, but resource. A way follows mission. Where there's mission, a way will appear. Because God, He makes a way where there was no way. He makes road, you know, streams in the desert, right? Roads in the wilderness. God has a way of getting you where you need to be. Don't think God cannot find you and position you where you need to be. Jerry, you got something? Exactly. We're about to see that the, the federal government of their time is going to pay for this thing. 
Now, it's not like a luxury ride, or he didn't go on a cruiser, but he's going to end up in Rome, and it gets wild uh, where we're going to go. So this adventure continues, but you're right. I love it when, when I was pastoring in Abilene. I know I've shared this, but it's just it's a good point. And we were there, and we had a lot of military. We were 45 to 50% military at our church, Dice Air Force Base is in Abilene, and we were very, very integrated into that base. And uh, I was there for 10 years, and about five years into it, we just got discouraged because we would, military personnel are some of the best church people ever because they understand chain of command, they're servants, they've got initiative, they're leaders, they've been trained and equipped, and, and, and man, they're just putting their lives on the line. They, so we just had, I loved our military guys. They were just my favorite. And our, like I said, our church was half, half of that, basically. But every time there was a big deployment, it just gutted our church. I mean, we'd have this great group. I'd get, get people in place, every position filled out in the church. Church is clicking along, and then we lose 50 people. I mean, it's just like devastating. Finally, it dawned on me about five years into that gig that the federal government was actually paying for our missions program. <laughs> Because these guys are getting deployed all over the world in the sandbox. They're going to Afghanistan. They're going to Kazakhstan. They're going all up to Guam. They're going everywhere. And so we began, we flipped our mentality. Because we were depressed every time an email went out about a deployment. We'd just be like, because I'd get that call or that text, uh, Pastor Jimmy about to be gone. And I'm like, ah, oh, no, who else? You know, it'd be 20 other people. So it was always hard. And... Uh, but I remember when we flipped the script on that and we started bringing everybody up who was going on deployments. We did that with Paul one time here. We bring them up on stage, we would lay hands on them and we would commission them to their mission field. And we would say, you know, the federal government has a commission for you. You have an assignment. But you know what? The kingdom, the kingdom, you're on assignment for the king of kings and the Lord of lords as well. And so, instead of separating church and state, we actually said, no, they're paying for our missions program. So, we put together these care packages, and what it was, Purple Book, which I introduced to y'all. So, they would go with a dozen Purple Books and, uh, and studies, Bibles, uh, little Bibles we got that they could take with them and small, or we would send them over once they landed and we found out where they were, we could get things to them. And we set up groups everywhere our military personnel went. And not everyone did it, but most did. But they did it because we realized the federal government was funding a missions program, and we, instead of fighting it and being frustrated, we got in on it, and we realized that was God's plan all along. So that was part of the role of our church, was to equip these soldiers with the gospel, and how to do a small group, and how to, do, how to take somebody through the purple book, and, and it was amazing, and they'd come back, instead of depleted and broken and shattered, they'd come back because they found encouragement, they were inspired. They were, they were inspired to be courageous, and, and they came back, and, and we had to do a lot less re-entry things with them, because it was sometimes difficult coming back off, off, the, off the deployments, hard on marriages and families and whatnot, and we noticed when, the, when they went out with an assignment and a commission for the kingdom, they came back better. They came back in better shape, and so it was a beautiful thing. Kind of the same thing, Jerry. He's about to get his, his ticket to Rome. He's not going to have to raise a dime for it, but it's not all pretty, but it's going to happen. So anyway, so we'll, we'll land the plane with this. 
The next morning, a group of Jews got together and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. That's pretty serious. They're like, we're going to take him out. Period. He's not going to Rome. So they try to set it up. There were more than 40 of them in the conspiracy. How would you feel if you got word that 40 people had bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until you, they, until you were dead? That makes Jezebel's promise look pretty, pretty slim to me. I mean, Jezebel said, you know, it's going to be done unto him what he did to our prophets of Baal. We're going to do the same thing to him before the sun sets. I mean, she, had, she issued a threat to Elijah. And, of course, it put him on a running path, right? He took off running. But, but here, on this situation, you've got 40 people who have bound themselves to, for, for murder, for bloodshed. They went to the leading priests and elders and told them, we have bound ourselves with an oath to eat nothing until we've killed Paul. So you and the high council should ask the commander to bring Paul back to the council again. Pretend you want to examine his case more fully. We will kill him on the way. They were going to set up an ambush. But Paul's nephew, his sister's son, we don't know much about Paul's family. There's very little reference in the scriptures, but here's one. His sister's son, so we know Paul had a sister, heard of their plan and went to the fortress and told Paul. So just Paul wakes up the next morning feeling real good about the Lord visiting in him and that he's going to go to Rome. And then he's told, hey, there's 40 guys that literally have took an oath to kill you. So Paul's like, do I believe the word of the Lord? Whose report will I believe? I'm going to believe the report of the Lord. So look what happens. Paul called for one of the Roman officers, said, take this young man to the commander. He has something important to tell him. So the officer did, explaining, Paul the prisoner called me over, asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. So you see the setup. You tell him. The commander took his hand, led him aside, and he said, okay, what is it you want to tell me? Paul's nephew told him, some Jews are going to ask you to bring Paul before the high council tomorrow, pretending they want to get some more information. So he's just saying, this is what I heard, but don't do it. There are more than 40 men hiding along the way, ready to ambush him. They have vowed not to eat or drink anything until they have killed him. They are ready now, just waiting for your consent. Don't let anyone know you told me this, the commander warned the young man. He said, let's keep this on the down low, all right? Don't say a word, and we will pick up next week. So, it's cliffhanger to be continued. So we'll pick up with it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are teaching us, you're equipping us. And Lord, I'm thankful that in the middle of all this chaos, you appeared to Paul and you encouraged him. Father, in the middle of our chaos, in the middle of when it just seems like everything's spinning out and going crazy and the wheels are falling off, you appear to us, sometimes through a friend, sometimes through a text of encouragement, sometimes through maybe a devotional thought we read or a word that's prayed over us or a, a kind word from a stranger, you have ways of appearing to us and you use people to do it all the time. Thank you that you love us that much. Thank you for appearing to us in so many and varied ways and encouraging us. Father, to every person here tonight, I speak encouragement. Lord, may their spirit be inspired to courage tonight. That just as you call us, you equip us. And just as you call us, 
you resource us for the mission. Lord, you, you're not going to send us out without equipment. So thank you. Thank you for the privilege of studying your word and learning and growing. I speak blessing over every person here tonight. Encourage their heart and their spirit. Even as they go out, I pray for God encounters of the most amazing kind the rest of this week. And when we come back on Sunday, we come back to celebrate what you've been doing in our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen.